Welcome to our podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics and Dean of the Faculty at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. We're here today with a very special guest, Dr. Russell Moore, one of the leading voices today at the intersection of Christian faith and culture. Dr. Moore is also president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention, the public policy arm for the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. He's also the author of several books, uh, one on adoption that I highly recommend, uh, but also his most recent book called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Dr. Moore, thanks so much for being with oh, us today. Oh, so much I really for appreciate me. your time with us. Uh, in that, I want to start on a more personal note, if we could. In a lecture you gave about a year ago called the Erasmus Lecture, mm-hmm. which I would encourage, encourage all of our listeners to get. If you, if you just Google Russell Moore first things, it will come up first, first things mm-hmm. uh, there. Uh, you describe your own spiritual journey, what you called your own spiritual crisis, and how that shaped you mm-hmm. in both positive and negative ways. Tell us a little bit about that spiritual background and how it's energized the things that you're passionate about today. Well, I grew up uh, in a, a very Christian uh, Christian. Uh, well, in in what Flannery O'Connor would call Christ haunted uh, sort of Bible Belt uh, community. My grandfather had been pastor of the the church I grew up in. So I had a very good uh, time of Christian nurture as a young believer in my congregation. I had some wise uh, leadership there. But when I turned fifteen or so, I had a major spiritual crisis. Uh, wondering, uh, as I looked around, I saw many of the things going on under the name of Christ, including racism and, and other things. I, I wondered, is this all just uh, some sort of a hood ornament on top of a Southern culture or American culture rather than, than uh, an actual word from God? Thankfully, uh, I had read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was a, a kid, and so I recognized the name C.S. Lewis when I saw it on the spine of mere Christianity. And um, I really think that that the Lord used that not only to save my faith, but probably to save my life, uh, it, because I, I, I found someone who it didn't seem he, as though he was trying to sell me anything. Uh, he was he was speaking as somebody who genuinely was bearing witness to something that was much much older than what I was encountering and also much broader and so I think I I, I got a bigger vision of the church uh, and thus a bigger vision of, of Christ uh, at that time and so one of the major burdens I have now in my life is speaking to other fifteen year old uh, Russell right, Moore's right, right. or, or those who are who are uh, Facing that same sort of crisis. Now, um, t- tell us just a little bit about your organization, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I suspect many of our listeners don't, don't well, maybe have heard of it, but don't know exactly what mm-hmm. you do. And why is the mission of that organization so important? Well, we do two things. Uh, one of those things is to equip churches and families and Christians uh, to think through uh, ethical issues. So everything from in vitro fertilization to uh, racial reconciliation in the local church to uh, end-of-life uh, questions. There's a full range of, of questions that, that someone would need to, to think through. Uh, and then 
Secondly, we speak from the churches uh, to the, the outside world. So in terms of media or government or, uh, or, or other uh, aspects of culture with what it is that Christians uh, believe and care about and why. And now you, were, you were trained in theology and ethics. Right, right. Correct. So that gives you a really good platform to speak to these. Are the, these are issues that you've addressed with graduate students and seminary students and in your own graduate work too. Right. And, and um, in many cases, what we exist to do is to serve as a kind of Paul Revere, uh, letting people know here are some things that you need to be ready for. Uh, whether that's with uh, parents trying to think through technology uh, as it applies to their, their children. And as I'm sure you've seen, um, in many cases, you have really biblically shaped informed parents who just aren't aware uh, of some of the technological uh, changes and innovations out there. Uh, or with more broadly with churches uh, thinking through, for instance, when I was serving as pastor of a local church, one of the things I noticed was that when the uh, factory down the street from us would furlough uh, or have, have layoffs, even just the threat of that, uh, I would immediately start seeing all kinds of uh, fractures taking place, uh, in, especially in the lives of, of the men uh, in that congregation. So I'm trying to say to churches right now, think through – uh, what is going to take place in terms of automation, uh, not in some some kind of Luddite, we don't want to go there uh, mentality, but in terms of saying what is going to happen if uh, within the next five to ten years uh, we have driverless cars that are routine? What happens when so many of the men in our congregations are truck drivers or Uber drivers or cab drivers, uh, and suddenly that's gone? How are we going to be able to support uh, the people going through that time of uncertainty uh, and so forth? So we, we, we try to inform people about what they're not thinking about yet. What would you say, what would you say are some of the, you know, if you had to list maybe the, the three or four most pressing things that uh, the, the folks that you minister to need to be on the alert for? What 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 are the what are the things that Paul Revere is sounding the loudest the loudest alarm about? Well, one today? of those things is uh, is racial reconciliation and justice, uh, which I think uh, there are many Christians who assume history will take care of this, and you know maybe we have some lingering sorts of flashpoints, but those will be resolved, and that's that's not the case. I think uh, I think we're going to come into a time of uh, even greater. Uh, racial tension and racial injustice around the world uh, than we are right now. So that that would be one of them. The others, frankly, most of them have to do with technology, uh, whether that is with that. For instance, there are uh, a lot of churches that are doing admirable work when it comes to pornography. A lot of churches aren't. They're not even addressing right. it, not even mentioning it, but some churches really are. Um, and and equipping people to, to be able to recognize what's going on and to and to avoid it but we're we're about to move into a time of virtual reality of artificial intelligence of uh, all sorts of uh, all sorts of technological innovations that are going to bring some in many of them great good but also are going to have uh, have some really negative potential so i think of a there's an elderly uh, eastern orthodox priest who said to me one time, uh, talking about the confessions that he heard, uh, and he said, 
most of the confessions that I hear would not have been technologically possible when I started Same my ministry. Right. Wow. And so I think uh, yeah. I think those are those are, are things yeah. we have to be watching. Yeah, my, my own field is in bioethics, mm-hmm. and the, some of the biotechnological things that are coming that that treat you know the good things that treat disease, but also can be used as you know these off-label uses yeah. to enhance otherwise normal traits. Yeah, uh, the sort of the steroids for the mind. I think those are we yeah. have to start wrestling with that too. Well, and when people don't, when people often what I find is it's not so much that. Uh, that Christians are making a decision to sort of move in a particular direction, especially yes. on bioethics, is that they don't even think that this is uh, an issue. Right. So I, I that, ran into a woman insightful. in a really conservative Southern Baptist church in the Deep South who uh, was uh, a doctor transitioning uh, people in terms of transgender mm-hmm. uh, uh, surgeries uh, and, and hormone therapy. And it wasn't that she had sort of worked through, here's what my ethical position is. She just didn't, didn't dream that there was uh, any ethical intersection here. And so those sorts of – I think that's, that's really widespread. Let's go to – you mentioned race mm-hmm. as being one of the big issues that's coming. You've, I think, been correctly critical of the church in the past for its silence, rough, basically, on issues of race and racial – Reconciliation. How how should the church be addressing these issues today? Well, I think the the main thing is uh, to have a church that uh, that recognizes first of all what's wrong. I mean, I, I think the biggest problem that we have right now is that we have we have become accustomed to racial injustice as normal, uh, and so and so we just don't even we just don't even think about it. And so to stand up and say, this is what is happening uh, in the world around us. This is what's happening in our own hearts. And this is uh, Jesus Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, uh, John tells us in 1 John. We have to identify what that, what that is. And that means I think sometimes, especially with white evangelicals, uh, there's, there's an understanding when they hear racism, they think – Personal hostility, personal and evident hostility. Prejudice. Yeah, and so somebody may say, "Well, if, as long as as long as I'm not uh, screaming racial epithets at someone, then we don't have uh, a problem." Which, of course, is much deeper than that. And also, just in terms of the, it's not only what the church has to say, but what the church is. Uh, and, and so, when you look at the New Testament, and you have Jesus putting together in one body, Jews and Gentiles, uh, why is it that our churches are so indicative of cultural identities uh, or economic identities uh, rather than that reconciling uh, work of, of the Spirit, which, which is a sign, Paul says, to the principalities and powers of the gospel, but also because this is the way that consciences are formed. And so if, we, if Galatians 6, we bear one another's burdens, uh, if I don't know what my brother or sister's burdens are, I'm not going to be able to help bear them and vice versa. Uh, so that's, that's an important part of it as well. I think sometimes we forget that the early church dealt with what I would call the mother of all racial yeah. divisions yeah. with Jews and Gentiles. And it was not, ju- not just Jews and Gentiles being a separate ethnicity. I mean, Gentiles was a, a mixture of all sorts right. of ethnicities that Jews had to be – Reconciled with, and yeah. they 
you know, some some of the Book of Acts where they wrestle with that is not very pretty. No, it's not. No, uh, it's not. But you know, thankfully they you know they came to, I think to a good resolution. Yeah. Some of those things, but um, let's does the the idea of you mentioned sort of white evangelicals. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you understand the notion of white privilege, and how that impacts? the discussion of how the church should be involved here. I think of a, a friend of mine who actually is a, a pastor in California, uh, African-American uh, pastor uh, who we were just talking one day about uh, prayer, sharing prayer requests. And he said to me, would you pray for me? My son is uh, filling out applications for college, and there are certain colleges I don't want him to get into because I don't think that the areas where they are are going to be safe for him as a young African-American man. And I realized I've never had to think about that uh, at all and would never have to think about that with my own children. Uh, And so I think that that what happens with with white privilege is not just that we have a society where uh, white European people started off uh, way ahead – uh, and and we're actually in shackling and enslaving others, but also just uh, the the way that that there are dynamics going on around us that often white people just don't even know about. So I can walk into a store here uh, and walk around. No one likely is going to follow me, uh, assuming that I'm shoplifting. Right. Uh, I have right. a colleague who's a young African-American man, I almost guarantee were he to walk into uh, a particular store and walk around. People are going to watch him and follow him. And so I think sometimes sometimes white Americans uh, just don't even recognize that that's going on. I asked my friend Chris Brooks, who's a pastor in the inner, oh, yeah. inner city of Detroit. Yeah. I said, tell me, have you ever been stopped by the police for no apparent reason? And he just laughed and said, every African-American man I know yeah. has been stopped for, for no apparent reason. And that's something I think that, you know, given where probably you and I grew up, that, that's a hard thing to relate to. Yeah, I, I, um, there's a pastor of an African-American church in my city, one of the most prominent figures in the city. I mean, his face is literally on the wall when you come uh, out of the airport uh, with advertisements for his church, massive church. Uh, who gets, he says, pulled over every time he goes into a suburban uh, area because uh, he's uh, an African-American yeah. male driving a nice car. People assume he's a drug dealer every time. Yeah. I and mean, that's, that's something that's just never going to happen yeah. to you or to me. Chris had said that uh, when, when African-American families talk about having the talk yeah. with their kids, you know, white families refer to that as the talk about sex right. and sexuality. For African American families, the talk is about mm-hmm. what to do if you get pulled over by the right. police. Exactly. This is ta- I mean, which would never have been on my radar screen. Right. Uh, right. Until having that conversation, you'd spend a lot of time with millennials and Generation Z. Um, where do you think they are headed on the issues of marriage and sexuality? I I know there's a sort of a popular conception that uh, millennial Christians Generation Z are moving left uh, on issues of marriage and sexuality, and uh, in terms of the public arena, in terms of the civil sphere, that's probably true. Um, not not so much because millennials and Generation Z have had a 
change of mind as much as they they simply are aware that this is this is the reality uh, in America right now. I don't think though uh, that you're seeing any move theologically and and morally uh, when it comes to sexuality issues. Uh, uh, among millennials and Generation Z, if you look at those who actually are going to church. Um, and I think that's especially what I find is that often I will find millennials particularly who wrestle with uh, these issues uh, for a time. And one of the reasons they wrestle with them is because sometimes the only thing that they have heard uh, speaking a contrary word to the culture are from people who uh, who just simply aren't uh, – are, are, aren't familiar with gay or lesbian people at all. And so they're thinking that these are the only alternatives that I have. That's not the direction I want to go. Uh, and so they wrestle with it. They grapple with it. But I think sooner or later, what I've found in most cases is that they realize the issue here is ultimately one of biblical authority. Uh, it's, it's just impossible uh, to uh, evacuate the scripture, what the scripture teaches when it comes to marriage and marriage definition and and uh, sexual morality, uh, and so many of the people who do make those arguments, notice what the arguments are. Well, the apostle Paul didn't know what we know now. I mean, that's that's not an that's really not a sexuality debate. That's a biblical authority uh, debate. I even had uh, one person arguing with me on this. Uh, who I said, well, let's let's not even talk about Paul right now, though I think Paul's inspired by the Spirit, uh, Jesus, uh, when he's talking about uh, marriage in terms of male and female from the beginning. Uh, and this person said, I think if Jesus were alive today, he would hold my view, uh, to which my response is, Jesus is alive today. Right. And uh, this is this is someone who's, who's claiming to be an evangelical, but really has has already surrendered on a really key part of biblical authority. So I've found a lot of people who wrestle with this for a time, uh, but ultimately uh, are saying Jesus is right uh, when it comes to, to questions of sexuality. So how do we hold to that uh, while still loving our mission field uh, and 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 also caring for people in our congregations who uh, who have same sex attraction or or who have gender dysphoria? Um, and if we aren't able to do that, uh, then we're not really serious about holding to what the Word of God says. How would you counsel a, a pastor who has someone who comes to him or her and says, "I'm, I'm wrestling with gender dysphoria. Uh, I, I mean, I don't. I I feel like I'm a different gender than what my body tells me I am." How, how would you counsel that pastor to deal with? people who wrestle with that particular thing? Well, the first thing I would do is to, is to thank God uh, that this person felt comfortable here, here. to come to me uh, because there are many churches where that would not be the case, where someone would feel as though the pastor would see him or her as a, as a freak uh, or, or something along those lines, uh, and which, is, which is not the case at all. I think one of the most important things for pastors to do is simply to acknowledge that there are people in the room who are experiencing probably uh, gender dysphoria or or, or sexual uh, all sorts of sexual uh, issues, uh, in order to say to both the people who are grappling with those things and to everyone else, this is not something that uh, evil people uh, grapple with and deal with. This is something that is part of. Uh, the entire world, and what it means to be a Christian is not to be exempt from temptation, 
Uh, it means to have the power of the Spirit and the body of Christ uh, in order to walk through that time together. And so that would be the main thing is see this person as a person. And one of the things I think we tend to do is to do exactly the same thing the sexual revolutionaries do uh, when they want to say, you are simply who you are in terms of your gender identity or, or your, your sexual identity. Uh, we have, as Christians, have a much more complex view of what a person is. And so we're seeing somebody as both created and fallen uh, and say, yes, you have this particular burden that you're grappling with right now, this particular point of vulnerability. I have another set of vulnerabilities, and we bear each other up. And then to have patience with, with what it takes to uh, come in and realize, okay, this person is alienated from who uh, he or she is created to be in the area of gender. All of us, though, are alienated from what we were created to be at some point or other. Uh, that's what Genesis 3 is all about. And so to have patience uh, working, working with someone and not to expect, well, if this person is a Christian, that's just going to immediately go away. To say, let's assume, let's assume that this is going to be a struggle that you're going to have for the rest of your life. May not be, but typically is, even if it's not. Uh, if that's removed, there are going to be ten more sets of vulnerabilities there. And so we're going to we're going to support each other and bear each other up and, and help each other. Do you see the church as becoming a, a more welcoming place for people who are wrestling hard with issues of sexuality? I think so. I think the church is. Um, I think the church is starting to acknowledge uh, that we have many people who. Uh, are are bearing a particular burden here and trying to find ways to to minister not only to those people but also to uh, parents and and loved ones which I think we've fallen down on quite a bit um, I was uh, I was in a, a church service one time it was a Wednesday night service I was teaching through James and at the end of it I would always say does anyone have any prayer requests people would give prayer requests and we would pray and this woman came up to me after, and she looked around, and then she whispered, uh, would you pray for my daughter? She's an atheist. She's away at college. And I said, why are you whispering? And she said, well, I don't want anyone to know that we're the ones with the atheist daughter. And I realized, okay, if she's protecting herself from her church. That's painful. Yeah. On, on, on an experience that every family in Scripture including God's, <laughs> has, then something's really gone wrong in the church. And I think, I think that's the case, too, with a lot of parents of uh, gay or lesbian children who sometimes, because of the way the church has wanted to come in and psychoanalyze uh, every, uh, every bit of sexuality in a way that we don't do with other points of vulnerability, often causes parents to feel like, well, we – we, if we yeah. even talk to someone about this, they'll assume, well, you should have done this, that, or the other, which is just not the case. Uh, and so I think having churches that are willing to uh, equip people and to say, also, this is what it looks like to hold to your conviction and to love your, your child. So uh, we kind of know how to do that when it comes to sins yeah. that we're more accustomed well, to. Lots, lots of other things. Lots of other things. But yeah. when it comes to, to this issue, I think sometimes there are parents who think um, if every conversation isn't a debate over Romans 1, then that means that I'm ashamed of, of the gospel. No, this is your child. Love your child and everything that that means. Uh, and also uh, stand by your convictions. Uh, 
And so that I think a lot of times that means equipping people on what uh, on the parable of the prodigal son, how that actually happens. And so uh, it's usually not at the end of a 20 minute debate. Uh, usually it's it's a pattern very similar to the prodigal son. Someone uh, has a crisis and then says, where can I turn? And they have that relationship and they know to do that. And so often I'll say, don't give up on your kids or your parents or your uh, whomever it is. Uh, th- recognize that it, this may take years uh, for that to, to embed in their hearts. And if you're the sort of people who say, I'm so afraid of you that I'll give up biblical conviction, you won't be able to reach them. And if you're the person who says, uh, I'm going to scream at you and hate you, uh, you're not going to be able to reach them for Christ. Yeah, you wonder what would have happened to the prodigal son had the father not welcomed him back yeah, with open arms. Exactly. That, that might not have been very pretty. Right, that's exactly right. Um, your book, Onward, I've really enjoyed reading through that. Thank you. The subtitle is uh, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. Um, what, tell us just a little bit about what, what that looks like. How, how do you do that? I know you try hard to model that personally, uh, but tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Well, I think one of the problems we have is we live in a time where uh, cultural issues are so uh, preeminent as fodder for uh, personal identity and debate uh, via social media, via old media, via everything else, um, that it, it can become very easy for Christians to do that as well, as though the cultural issues are ultimate. Uh, rather than seeing anything that's going on in our cultural ecosystem around us is symptomatic of something else. And so we have to know what that is. And so we need to be the people who are holding fast to the gospel, which means that we understand the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, and we speak to that. And uh, we're the people who recognize that the gospel didn't come for the righteous but for sinners. And so we're, we're constantly um, – I think the, the model for me on this is Jesus with the woman at the well in John four sixteen, where he says, go get your husband and come here. I think both parts of that are necessary. He, he talks about go get your husband knowing what her situation right. was, that she has had five husbands and the man she was now with was not her husband. He knows that and he, he goes there uh, with her, but he doesn't stop there. And come here. You're, you're welcome here. You, I want you to come here in repentance and in faith. And so I think that a lot of the time what we're dealing with, we're talking about various cultural issues, is really dealing with the things that we hide behind in order to hide from the voice of God. And so what I want to do is to address whatever that cultural issue is, but only uh, in insofar as I can turn uh, attention back to uh, the the good news of the gospel, and say here here's how, here's how the gospel informs both how we live in terms of God's justice, and also in terms of God's mercy. Sometimes we're gonna we're gonna fail at that. We're gonna we're gonna uh, uh, emphasize something uh, too much in one direction or the other, uh, and need to to recalibrate. But that ought to be the that ought to be the goal. That's that's helpful because I think there's sometimes we view a, a tension between evangelism and you know seeking the welfare of the city. 
yeah. that were in evangelism and the common good or seeking justice. But you see those as sort of intrinsically connected. I do. They're not the, they're not the same thing. Uh, so I could um, I could work with people on issues of of the common good where uh, we we don't hold the gospel in common. So I, I might work with uh, people on sex trafficking uh, who would not hold it all to uh, biblical Christianity. But I'm wanting to show up there as a as a gospel informed Christian who is recognizing that everybody I'm dealing with. Uh, is potentially a future brother or sister in Christ, and and even potentially the person who may evangelize my future yeah. grandchildren or great grandchildren. Right. Uh, so that has to. If we have that mindset, uh, then that tends to correct us from this tendency to see everyone who disagrees with me right now on whatever is a particularly contentious issue as an enemy to be vaporized, uh, rather than uh, rather than someone. Uh, for whom we're saying, here's the here's the mercy of God and the blood of Christ, Doctor Moore. We so appreciate your not not only the courage of your convictions, but also the the winsomeness with which you hold them, Thank you. Uh, particularly in public. And you're you're in the middle of some pretty interesting, if not outright hostile, audiences that that test your your winsomeness metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, how could how are a couple of ways that our listeners could pray for you in the months to come? Well, I think just praying for me to live out what it is that I believe, which is to be close to Jesus and to be seeking the power of the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit and for balance. I think that's what probably every Christian needs is to have people praying that there would be a sense of wisdom as to knowing what uh, what projects to undertake and what not to undertake, and and so forth. Yeah, this engaging the co- the culture without losing the gospel feels to me a little bit more like a, a bit more of a high uh, tightrope walk. Yeah. Than than it's been in the past. Yeah, I think so. And so I think that that prayer for, for wisdom about how to continue to do that wisely and winsomely, we'll continue to pray for you. Thank you. In that regard, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, for, thanks for, for having your, me. your insight. This has been incredibly insightful stuff. Thank you. And so I, I'm sure our audience has benefited greatly from hearing from you. Thanks for taking the time oh, to be with us. thanks for having us. me. This has been an episode of our podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. We're delighted to have heard from Dr. Russell Moore today. Uh, If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app, share it with a friend. Thanks for listening, and remember to think biblically about everything.